there for a congregational meeting, uh, the annual congregational meeting to be held next week. That is, we're gonna, we're gonna push that off until the last weekend in February. Uh, several reasons for that that I won't go into, but um, we'll, do that, we'll do that next month. There's nothing in our bylaws that says it has to be done in January or nothing in the Book of Church Order, so we are, we are good with that. Uh, so we'll, uh, so just kind of um, cross that out. We will be celebrating the Lord's Supper next week, uh, so come prepared uh, for that. Uh, also, uh, keep in mind men's, uh, men's breakfast and Bible study is going to be held February 4th at my house, uh, and there'll be more uh, of that coming out. One other announcement, uh, the, on the 5th, well, there's a couple of announcements. On the 5th uh, of February, uh, we will, there, there's going to be a basketball tournament here in this building. Uh, we've, we've dealt with that at the, at the previous school, okay? So you're, what you're going to do is struggle to find parking spaces uh, when you come because the, that, that tournament starts early. So we're asking folks to park out here on, on this side of the building. Uh, and, and there's no real parking lines uh, out there. Uh, we'll, we'll try and have maybe one of the deacons out there to assist in, in, in parking. But park where you can, but just, just understand that when you come to church uh, on that Sunday, uh, it's gonna be a little congested here at the building. Yesterday was our presbytery meeting and uh, uh, after five hours of driving and eight hours of meeting, um, most of the elders here are shot. But uh, the good news is Scott Etberg passed with flying colors. Uh, he was examined by the presbytery. Uh, he has now been transferred from his presbytery, which happens to be Providence Presbytery, uh, down in Alabama. Uh, he is now part of the Ileana Presbytery. He will start here as our uh, senior pastor uh, on that first weekend uh, of the basketball tournament, uh, February 5th, okay? So uh, that, was, uh, that was indeed good news. I'm gonna ask Mark Limbach if you'll come, please, and uh, uh, talk about this quarterly financial summary, Mark. Yep, so uh, the usual quarterly financial summary in your bulletin there, uh, we can go over it. Quickly. So this is kind of year-end 2022. Uh, at the congregational meeting, we usually set the budget, so we might talk a little bit more about that. Um, and if you have questions, that would probably be an appropriate time to ask them. Uh, if you just look here at the top, we've got the general fund giving, uh, the budgeted versus the actual. So what that means is, is we took in 318,000. We were we were anticipating getting 283,000, so we took in more than we thought we would, which was good. Uh, the general fund expenses is the next, the next uh, little chart there. So you've got how much we budgeted for. So we budgeted for 270,000. We actually incurred 192,000 uh, expenses. So we're under underspend, which is also good. We were anticipating getting a pastor. You know that didn't happen in 2022, um, but that that's so that's in that uh, expenses that we anticipated, and of course we weren't spending that. Uh, just for the math, the math is done for you there. Year to date, uh, excess giving over expenses, $126,000. So we're $126,000 in the green. Um, year to date giving all funds, that's $338,000. So that's 
about 20,000 more than the 318. So that includes if you give to the diaconate, uh, if you give to missions, uh, if you give to the building fund, any other thing that you might designate on your giving uh, that is included in everything. So in the bank, we have $927,000. And we also own two pieces of land, one in Edwardsville and one here in Troy. So uh, that, that would explain then why the portion of cash of the 927,000, there's 188,000 that's building fund cash, but that's just meaning that it is specially designated for the building fund. And then once we sell the land in Edwardsville, part of that will become building fund money because it was bought with building fund money and part of it won't. And that's a little bit complicated, but the deacons are making sure that if you gave to the building fund, it goes toward the building versus if you just gave your tithe, it's in the general fund. So. If you have questions, you can see a deacon or come ask me. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Uh, two other announcements, if you would. On that weekend of uh, the 5th of February, uh, we are also going to have an ordination, or an installation, rather, ceremony. Uh, that is going to be held on, um, on the 5th, and it's up at uh, Adrian Doss's church, Westminster Church up in Godfrey, and we'll have, uh, we'll have a flyer in the bulletin regarding that. I believe that starts at 6 o'clock on next Sunday evening. Uh, and um, uh, I'm sorry? It, two Sundays, I'm sorry, yes. And uh, Scott's senior pastor from down in Tuscumbia, who is going to be one of the keynote speakers at General Assembly, uh, is coming up to, uh, to, to speak that night. So and make sure that you are there. Um, one other announcement, I, I don't know how many of you know, but uh, this week, uh, Dan and Joanne Ostendorf were uh, going to fly to Florida for a two-week vacation, and uh, while they were entering the airport, Joanne had a fall, and um, she was taken to the hospital uh, because of a cut on her forehead, and uh, when they did scans at the hospital, uh, they found a brain tumor. And so Joanne uh, will be undergoing surgery this coming Wednesday uh, at DePaul. Is that right? DePaul Hospital. Uh, so we're going to be in prayer for her. And let's, uh, let's pause just for a moment and pray for her right now. Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. And we lift up to you, our sister. And we lift up to you, Dan, Lord God. And we know, Father, that all things work together for good to those that love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. And so, Father, we just ask that you would be with Joanne, quiet her heart. Be with her, Lord God. Be with the surgeons uh, as they operate on Wednesday. Father, we are confident that she is in your hands. We ask, Father, for a good outcome. We ask, Lord God, that you would bless the Ostendorfs, bless their family, be with them uh, during this uh, period. And we just praise you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's quiet our hearts as the choir comes and sings our intro.
Will you stand for our call to worship? This morning, our call to worship is found in Psalm 147, verses 1 through 5. The psalmist writes, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant, and a song of praise is fitting. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. Great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Remain standing as we sing our hymn of praise. Uh, 51 in your hymnals, uh, Lord, thy word abideth, the text is, is based on Psalm 5. Right. 
set themselves to fight. Oh, let all that trust thy care ever glad and joyful be. Let them joy who love thy name, safely guarded, Lord, by thee. For a blessing from thy store, in thy righteous thou wilt yield, thou with pompous him about, with thy favor as a shield. Please remain standing. Would you bow your heads with me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Holy Spirit. As the Apostle Peter reminds us in his first epistle, according to your great mercy, you have caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. When we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, Christ died for us in order to show forth his great love for us. How we are amazed at this love this sacrifice that you have provided for us, Father. And so your people come to you this morning to express our feeble attempt to reflect back to you the glory that you so mercifully bestowed towards your church here on earth. Take our prayers, Jesus, take our worship, take all that we do here today and make it acceptable in the sight of God. Let it rise like sweet-smelling incense before the throne of grace. Today on this Sabbath, we acknowledge our complete reliance on you. We pray as the psalmist prayed. We will enter your gates with thanksgiving in our hearts and into your courts with praise. We will give thanks to you and bless your name. For Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever and your faithfulness extends to all generations. We are especially thankful that our presbytery voted unanimously to bring Scott Edberg to us to serve as our pastor. Please bless the Edbergs as they prepare for their move here to their new home. Help us as a congregation to be a blessing to them. Lord, now let all that we do here this morning be acceptable in your sight. And bless us as we pray as our Savior taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. This morning, our confession of faith is, comes from the Westminster Larger Catechism. It's question number 83. I'll read the question and we'll respond as a congregation. What is the communion in glory with Christ which the members of the invisible church enjoy in this life? The members of the invisible church have communicated to them in this life the first fruits of glory with Christ, as they are members of him, their head, and so in him are interested in that glory 
which he is fully possessed of, and as an earnest thereof, enjoy the sense of God's love, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, and hope of glory, as the contrary, center of God's breath, horror of conscience, and a fearful expectation of judgment are to the wicked the beginning of their torments, which they shall endure after death. Our confession of sin, or preparation for confession of sin, found in the book of Romans, verses 19, or chapter 3, verses 19 through 20, where the apostle Paul writes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Let's bow in silent confession before the Lord, and I'll close us in a word of corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning confessing to you all of our faults and failures. This is a time of deep introspection, Lord. Help us to open our hearts up wide to your Holy Spirit and let the cleansing work of your Spirit illuminate those dark places of our hearts. Cut away the necrotic places, the secret sinful places of our hidden passions. Use this time, Lord, to bring to our mind the area of our lives that refuse to yield to your holy law. So often we ignore the calling of your spirit to give up the lust that surface in our hearts, choosing to entertain thoughts and actions so contrary to your will and most holy character. We make excuses for our sin rather than confessing our faults to you. In the secret places of our hearts, we cling to our sins, choosing the love of sin over the love we have for you. We presume upon your loving kindness, your long suffering, and the great love with which you love us. But you are a loving God, and the depth of your forgiveness is unfathomable. Who, Lord, is able to plumb the depths of your infinite loving kindness or to truly understand your abundant grace? Teach us, Holy Spirit, that the blood of Jesus truly and most thoroughly cleanses the foulest of sinners. Lead us to a place of repentance and help us to heed the words of the Apostle Paul where he urged the Corinthians to let a man examine himself and to judge ourselves. Fill us with a holy resolve to put away the deeds of the flesh and to forsake the works of the evil one. Let us mind the words of Isaiah who said, Speak the Lord, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And we pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our great Savior and Lord, and all of God's people said, Amen. The assurance of pardon also found in the book of Romans, chapter 3, the next two verses, verses 21 and 22. 
the apostle writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Would you stand with me as we sing our assurance, hymn of assurance 119J. Let us join our voices together and sing praise to God for the assurance that we are pardoned from our sins. Uh, the, the, the hymn of assurance this morning is your hands created and established me. Uh, the, the words are based on Psalm 119. continue to worship the Lord in our tithes and offerings.
Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus that we thank you, Lord God, for these tithes and offerings. We thank you, Lord, for all that you have given to us, Lord, and, and how you have blessed us to be able to return to you a portion of that. We give you all the praise and glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you'll take a copy of scriptures and stand with me and turn to the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 42, we're going to read the first of what's called the servant's songs. Uh, these are four of these in Isaiah, one here in chapter 42, there's another in 49 a third in chapter 50, and then the fourth, probably the most uh, well-known of all, uh, in chapter 52 and 53. Isaiah 42, we're going to be reading the first nine verses. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or fill up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says the God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind to bring out of prison from the dungeons, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I will now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Our New Testament reading is found in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 7. We'll be reading verses 11 through 23. Soon afterward, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her, and when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearers stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
The disciples of John reported all of these things to him, and John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have the good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's now sing our, our uh, uh, benediction. Doxology. Doxology would be good, too. Again, it's a, a pleasure um, to introduce Shane Rosenthal. Um, Shane has been uh, a regular, an irregular regular, I guess, uh, here at Providence as we have sought to fill the pulpit uh, for the past few months. And uh, Shane, we appreciate that. We appreciate your faithfulness. You were always ready uh, to preach for us. and. Uh, uh, we invite you to come. Shane is the, um, the host uh, of the podcast, The Humble Skeptic. And if you are not a member, I'll give you the commercial. How's that, brother? If you are not a member, uh, look it up. It is, it is a good podcast. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's sound, good theological uh, uh, teaching. So, Shane, come Well, good morning. It's a pleasure to be with you once again, as I've had the opportunity over the past year or so, I don't know, six or eight months, uh, to open the word and to share um, the truths from God's scriptures uh, with this congregation. I uh, am, it's been, you know, great to get to know you, and I'm really excited for what God has in store, especially with the news of the uh, of the, what the Presbytery recently declared about your uh, future pastor. So I will be keeping this congregation in prayer, and I will certainly pray for Scott as he begins his ministry among you. This morning we'll be taking a look at the text of our New Testament lesson, which was from Luke chapter 7. Uh, this is the scene in which John the Baptist has what we might be tempted to call a crisis of faith. 
course, in the opening of John's gospel, we actually find a very different scene. On the banks of the Jordan River, this same John, John the Baptist, pointed to Jesus and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. On that day, there was no doubt or hesitation in his voice. And if you think about it, it was essentially a prophetic announcement. Jesus was being identified and proclaimed as Israel's Messiah. He would be the one to fulfill the great promise made to Abraham back in Genesis 22. He would redeem Israel from all her sins. Also in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus said of John that among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. So in a sense, Jesus is saying that John is the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. And yet here in our text this morning from Luke 7, we find this same one expressing doubt. Now, we might be tempted to ask at this point, how how can this be? You know, was John the Baptist an inspired prophet or was he not? And if he was, how is it possible for him to have a moment of doubt? Well, this is what I'd like us to consider this morning. If you're anything like me, you've likely had moments of doubt in your own lives. In fact, John Calvin once famously said that all of us are partly unbelievers until the day we die. We're kind of all like that man in Mark chapter 9 who says to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. He's both a believer and a a doubter. So if you think about it, this passage that we find here in Luke 7 can actually be a source of comfort for all of us in our own moments of doubt and weakness. Apart from Jesus himself, John the Baptist is the greatest prophet who ever lived, and yet even this man has moments of doubt. In fact, here in Luke 7, he seems to be having trouble believing in the message of his own sermon. So before we unpack this passage this morning, I'd first like to clear away a few misconceptions. And the first misconception is the idea that prophets were holy men who were always inspired in everything that they did and said. If you currently hold this view, I recommend that after the service, you go back and read the book of Jonah. Might help. Another section of scripture that I think can be helpful in addressing this this common misconception is um, 2 Samuel 7, which is that that interesting scene in which King David comes to Nathan saying, you know, God lives in a tent, I live in a palace, it's all topsy-turvy. I got an idea. I'm going to build God a beautiful house. And Nathan, the prophet, says, sounds like a great plan. Who wouldn't like it? He was Jewish, you know. I may have ad-libbed a little bit there. But basically, Nathan goes home and then comes back the next day and he says, actually, God has a different message. And then he says, uh, you know, God is actually going to build you a house. (laughs) There he means a dynasty. It's a different message. But the point is that That which initially sounded like a good idea to Nathan later was slight adjustment, an asterisk. Uh, God has a different word. Therefore, a careful study of that passage reveals that Israel's prophets of old were merely human instruments who on some rare occasions spoke God's word, served as God's mouthpiece. 
We see this even with a New Testament character like Peter. You know, Peter had been with Jesus throughout his ministry. He witnessed many miracles, but he too had moments of weakness and doubt. He denied Jesus three times, we know. And even after he was restored by Jesus, after his resurrection as he's an apostle, he was actually... Paul had to rebuke him at one point because he made a crucial mistake relating to the way that Jews and Gentiles interact with each other. So the point we need to keep in mind is that prophets and apostles were not inspired in everything that they did and said. They only had, as it were, a kind of limited inspiration. But Jesus, on the other hand, always spoke God's word. Always. Because he was God in human flesh. This is the main point, I think, behind the opening lines of the book of Hebrews, which says, Long ago, and at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And I believe this explains how we can find John the Baptist, the best man, apart from, you know, the best one born of women. Why we can find him having a moment of doubt. He can make, on one one hand, a very bold and confident assertion about Jesus in a kind of prophetically inspired way and moment. But then also, we find him within a relatively short time span, sending messages to Jesus, asking and inquiring, is he really the one to come? Now, another misconception we need to address is the idea that faith is always, in and of itself, a good thing. You know, sometimes faith is always just you know, described by believers as it's, it's a good and holy and religious and spiritual thing. And doubt, on the other hand, is bad. But it always doesn't. It? it depends on the thing we're believing or doubting. It's good to doubt people like Joseph Smith. It's not good to believe in, you know, Mormon theology. So Proverbs 14, 15 says this, The simple man believes everything, but the prudent give, gives thought to his steps. In other words, this particular proverb is actually warning us not to be naive or gullible. We shouldn't believe every idea or opinion that's out there in the marketplace of ideas because heresy and false teaching are real things. And this means that in many cases, exercising some level of doubt and skepticism and discernment is actually a good thing that the Bible encourages. Now, with some of these categories in mind, let's take a close look at our passage this morning from Luke chapter 7. John the Baptist, you'll recall, has been imprisoned by Herod. While behind bars, his disciples visit him and they tell him about the things that Jesus has been doing in the region. But after languishing for a while in jail, John was no longer his old self. We might even say that he was experiencing a kind of depression. And so rather than responding with joy to what he was hearing about Jesus, John sent his disciples to Jesus to ask a question. Are you the one who is to come? Or should we look for another? Now when John's disciples did finally catch up with Jesus, they found him healing many people of their diseases, bestowing sight and other things. And according to verses 22 and 23 of Luke 7, they relate, after relaying John's question, Jesus says to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, 
The lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Now, many scholars have pointed out the fact that the significance of Jesus' response to John's disciples, particularly in the way he ends up alluding to various Old Testament prophecies, prophecies in particular that relate to Isaiah. For example, in uh, verses 17 through 19 of Isaiah 29, we read this. It is not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field, and the fruitful field shall be turned regarded as a forest. In that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exult in the Holy One of Israel. Similarly, in Isaiah 35, we're told that the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. We could also think, of course, of the words we heard this morning from our Old Testament lesson in Isaiah 42, the beginning of the servant songs of Isaiah. There God promised to send a deliverer who would become a light to the nations. In fact, we're told that this coming servant would open the eyes of the blind and to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, those who sit in darkness. So now put yourself in John's shoes. You're sitting there in the dungeon in prison. And what's the particular promise from these Old Testament scriptures that's going to be resonating with you? What happens when the Messiah comes? Well, when the Messiah comes, he's going to set the prisoners free. That's what I would focus on if I was John. And that, perhaps, is the significance of John's question at the end of the day. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? In other words, what's taking you so long? (laughs) Why haven't you come and set me free? What are you waiting for? Do what the Messiah is supposed to do. Get me out of here. Don't you know that I'm suffering in this place? Don't you know that I'm regularly subjected to beatings? Are you the Messiah or are you not? Now, what's particularly comforting to me is that in his response, Jesus never actually ends up rebuking John. Did you notice that in our New Testament lesson? Think about this for a moment. If blind faith is indeed a virtue, this would be a great time for Jesus to lay into John about his lack of faith. Instead, Jesus actually tells John to report back what his, to his disciples, report to John what you have seen and heard with your eyes. What has Jesus just been doing? The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus is not only reminding John's disciples what they've seen with their own eyes, but he uses specific language that alludes to various Old Testament prophecies about Israel's coming Messiah. In other words, in his response, uh, Jesus' response is actually resting on two primary things. First, it's resting on the authenticity of the eyewitness accounts. So John may have had trouble believing in general what some people were saying through the grapevine about Jesus. But the eyewitness reports of his closest disciples, 
the ones who were committed to visiting him while he's in prison. This is something that would be hard for him to dismiss. And they are coming to report to him what they've just seen hours earlier, or perhaps a day later. John knows these men well. He trusts them deeply. And so when they report all that they see him doing, this is extremely credible evidence to them because they are very trustworthy disciples. Secondly, as his disciples reported the specific words that Jesus relayed to John, he certainly would have picked up on the very clear allusions to the Messianic prophecies, that which, some of which we just read. It was this morning as I was driving up, I listened to an interview with uh, uh, an apologist by the name of Craig Evans, and he was talking about this passage, and I was thinking, is it too late to, to add this to my sermon? So I'll just have it to ad lib it. He, what he said was, there's another allusion to Psalm 146. So check that psalm out. And there was a Dead Sea Scroll fragment that was found, 4Q, I think 151, if my memory serves me. And this particular Dead Sea Scroll talks, it's interacting with this language that sounds very much like the structure of Jesus' response. This Dead Sea Scroll was written about 100 years before the time of Jesus. And so the expectation about the Messiah was precisely the kind of thing that Jesus was announcing to John to comfort him in his time of doubt. So as he's alluding to these Old Testament prophecies using the very language that the Jews were using at the time, the point for John became inescapable. Very credible eyewitnesses have just seen with their own eyes the fulfillment of what Isaiah and others, the author of Psalm 146, had, had promised had foreseen centuries earlier with their own eyes, with their eyes of faith. This is how Jesus chose to comfort John in the midst of his doubt. He didn't shame John for his lack of faith, but instead he gave him very credible reasons to believe. As it turns out, this is exactly the approach we find throughout all the scriptures, going all the way back to the time of Moses. Think about the scene in which Moses is, uh, you know, he's told to report to Pharaoh that he is God's mouthpiece, God's servant, and God's uh, liberator. He's the, he will be the one to announce to Pharaoh, let my people go. Well, that may be hard to believe, right? Well, God actually says to Moses ahead of time in Isaiah, uh, Exodus chapter 7, God forewarns Moses that Pharaoh will not believe his story. He will not believe that he is the one who spoke with God directly. And therefore, he will say, God says to Moses, when, God, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall, you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a, a serpent. Pharaoh, you see, wasn't going to simply take Moses at his word. He needed proof. What's interesting, though, is the fact that most religious people today don't seem, think, seem to think that this is okay, that pr proof and religion, proof and faith don't really go together. You can't prove faith. It's just something you just have to feel and experience for yourself. Religion isn't based on proof. It's, a, it's, a, it's this blind, irrational leap. But the odd thing about Exodus and other texts is that, well, in Exodus chapter 7, 
is the fact that Pharaoh's demand for proof was never actually described as an impious thing. Rather, God simply instructs Moses to grant Pharaoh's demand. In fact, something similar happens in Exodus 4 as Moses wonders whether the Israelites themselves will believe his story that God really spoke to him at the burning bush. And God promised to be with him and to empower him to perform various signs which would authenticate his message. If they will not believe or listen to you for the first sign, they may believe the second or the latter sign. He's going to give sign after sign after sign until they believe. This is then reported at the end of Exodus 4. When Moses declared these things and performed the signs, the people believed. They believed on the basis not just blindly accepting that he was God's prophet, but also because the, sign, the word was confirmed by the events of the real world, which they saw with their eyes. Once these were seen, they believed. Now, some of you may be saying to yourselves at this point, this is all well and good, but what about the time in which Jesus said that it was an evil and adulterous generation that seeks after signs? This is an important objection that I think we should deal with head on. So I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16, and let's look at this passage just for a brief moment. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1, we're told that the Pharisees and Sadducees come to Jesus and they test him, uh, and they ask him it to show a sign from heaven. And in verse 2, Jesus answers these, Matthew 16, verse 2. He says, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red, and in the morning it will be stormy for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and he departed. Well, so what, should, what we should point out here is that Jesus did end up performing hundreds, if not thousands of miracles in his three-year ministry. Even the great Nicodemus called him, uh, came to Jesus by night saying, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. But at one point in his ministry, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus insisting that he show them not just any sign, but a sign in the heavens, you know, write your name in the clouds. And on this particular occasion, Jesus decided not to grant their request. Take a look at verse 4 again. He says, An evil generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Typically, I think we read this passage as if Jesus has said the generation was evil because it asked for a sign. But this verse doesn't actually say that. Jesus first describes the people of his generation as evil and adulterous, which is actually something that just about every prophet of Israel said about the generation he ministered in. Because all, every generation was in violation of the Mosaic Covenant at some point. Jesus says, in effect, this generation asks me for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. In other words, Jesus didn't actually refuse their request. He just didn't agree to their terms. He didn't instantly give them a sign from the heavens. Instead, he pointed to the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah foreshadowed his own death, burial, and resurrection. And it was something that had been foretold in a variety 
of prophecies throughout the Hebrew scriptures. Isaiah 53 being foremost important. The point I'm making here is that Jesus performed many signs and gave many convincing proofs, Acts chapter 1 verse 3, that he was indeed Israel's Messiah. But he was also God incarnate. And on some occasions, he sovereignly chose not to perform the signs on the terms that were being presented to him. For example, in Mark chapter 1, verse 37, we're told that on one morning, the disciples were frantically looking for Jesus because they were saying, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus said, let's go to the next village that I may preach there also. For that is why I have come. You see, in the Gospels, you get the sense sometimes that the signs and wonders have unfortunately become an end in themselves. And, but the, the very nature of a sign is to point away from itself. You know, the very nature of a sign is to, is to think about like if you are driving to St. Louis, you, you don't stop at the sign thinking you've arrived. It's pointing to a, a different reality somewhere else. The sign by itself points to something. And that's what the, the signs, of, that's why they're called signs after all. When Jesus calmed, calmed the storm in, uh, on the Sea of Galilee, no one sort of said, wow, that's just amazing. Let's just, let's just take this in. And you know, Jesus, I have storms in my life. I'm wondering if you could help with that. That's the way often it's preached. Instead, though, what, what did happen? It was a sign that pointed to something else. What happened was the disciples in the boat became terrified. Who is this who is in this boat with us who can calm the storm? Now, when you and I read accounts like these in the Gospels today, on some occasion, you might find some of these stories hard to believe. I came into the faith late. I converted to the Christianity at about age 18. My first reading of the New Testament, it was hard to believe some of these stories. It may be, have been, it may be easier for you because you've been, you've been raised with them, most of you. But as I was reading this for the first time, I'm thinking, this is, this is, this is a crazy book. Well, if you find yourself, even as a believer, sometimes wondering, like, how, how does this particular miracle work? How, the feeding of the 5,000 from two pieces, two fish, and a couple of loaves, how does it even work? But if you think about it, the opposite is even harder to believe. How could a man who claimed to be God have attracted so many followers in first century Judea without performing any miracles? What's the first person you're, what's the first thing you're going to ask of someone who says, pleasure to meet you, by the way, I'm your creator? First thing that I would say was, prove it. Snap your fingers, levitate, do something. When you find yourself having moments of doubt, recall to your minds this scene in which John the Baptist is lying in the prison cell. Earlier in his career, he's, he spoke with such bold confidence about Jesus. But now in his prison cell, he's beginning to wonder whether Jesus really is the promised Messiah. Of course, he's hearing all kinds of crazy things you know, people are saying about Jesus. But he doesn't know what to make of these stories anymore. But when his own disciples report the things that they just saw, saw him do and what he just said, the point was inescapable. 
there seemed to be a match between that which John's disciples had just witnessed and that which the Old Testament prophets had proclaimed. Have you ever thought about your faith in that way? Have you ever thought about the difference between the Christian faith and every other religion out there in the world? Most religions, you know, most even ideologies, just self-help ideas, most of them are rooted in this sort of idea of try it, you'll like it. It's about personal experience, life change. Uh, it just gives me a better result. I, I, like, I, like the, I became a better me after trying Scientology or Joel Osteen or whatever. But Christianity is really the only religion that says, believe it because these things really happened. This is true. In fact, our texts even say, if Jesus never really existed or never really rose again from the dead, no one should be a Christian. But if the factual claims recorded by the witnesses really occurred, then everyone should be a Christian. It's a, it's a public truth claim, which if it really occurred, is true whether we believe it or not. Because it's a historical claim. This is the way the New Testament actually reads. In fact, 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul describes the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as seen by many witnesses, the apostles, and over 500 living eyewitnesses. But it was also foreseen throughout the scriptures. He repeats this idea according to the scriptures, as seen by, according to the scriptures. This he, reclaimed, he calls the thing of first importance. The very heart of Christianity is a particular set of factual claims, which is why we call it good news. It's not just good ideas, it's not just good experiences, good news. News. It's a report of something that really happened, seen by witnesses. All this is part of the gospel that we proclaim. It's newsy. It's a report of an event. And this is a report not just of an event that's subjectively meaningful to you and me, but it's a, a report about something that really happened in the world that changed everything. It may give us warm feelings or it may not. It's whatever the case, this is the way it is with news. Sometimes you'll read the history book and you'll say, interesting stuff. Other times you read the history book and you say, wow, I can't believe that really happened. Your feelings come and go, but the truth remains truth. Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Think about John's words here for a minute. Is there anything at all impious about this question? Granted, it's, a, it's somewhat surprising that it comes from John the Baptist, especially in light of Jesus' declaration that he is, of all men, the most significant. But at the end of the day, this is not an assertion of unbelief. It's just a question. John, you see, is merely looking for evidence to regain his former confidence you know, the one he preached in that sermon by the Jordan River. Behold the Lamb. Behold the Lamb. Is Jesus really the promised Messiah? Is he the Lamb? Notice all the things that Jesus does not say to John in his response. He does not say, My, John, how have the mighty fallen? He doesn't say, Listen here, John. You know better than to ask a question like that in a place like this. You know, John, you're, you just don't have enough faith. 
Your problem is that you're trying to reason through. You're overthinking this. You're trying to reason with your mind. But faith isn't cognitive. It's just a blind spiritual leap. It's something you feel in your heart deeply. What happened to you, John? Instead, Jesus actually ends up furnishing John with proof that vindicated his identity as the true Messiah of Israel. He didn't turn him inward. He directed him outward to things that his closest disciples recently saw and heard just not long before he, they arrived at his, at his prison cell. This is how Jesus comforted John during his time of doubt. Now, there's one more thing I'd like to call your attention to before I wrap up this morning, and that is in, verses, uh, in verse 23 of Luke 7. Jesus does perhaps give John a gentle critique. In verse 22, backing up one verse, he says, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear and the dead are raised. The poor have the good news preached to them. But then Jesus says this, And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This, it could be argued, was perhaps John's problem. He was, in fact, offended by the fact that Jesus had sovereignly decided not to intervene to rescue him in prison. You see, John believed that when the Messiah came, he was supposed to open the prison doors and release those who were in the dungeons. And so, you know, there are a few ways to look at, you know, what's happening here, whether those Old Testament promises were ultimately metaphors for the imprisonment that all of us have in sin. I mean, think about Jesus' own words. Um, he who, is a, who sins is a slave to sin, but if you believe in the Son, he shall set you free. Perhaps, uh, you know, this is, these promises were the, of the prophecies of the things that would be happening later in, say, the book of Acts, where, you know, we find uh, some of the apostles are in prison, and there's an earthquake, and the doors open. The point is, John was experiencing frustration, reading between the lines, that he himself wasn't liberated. And the point in verse 23 is that no one actually can order up their own providence. No one has the right to order. Basically, there are two rules in the universe. There is a God, and you are not he. Basic rules. If you get those down, it's all downhill from there. John, on the other hand, John was thinking, I have, I've seen the promise, and it hasn't come to pass. Now, did, did the Old Testament text say, when the Messiah comes, every single prisoner will be set free? Uh-huh. Perhaps you jumped a little too far. We've, we all of us do this, right? You'll cling to some interpretation of the text, and then you realize, maybe I should have rethought that a little. In fact, sometimes God calls us to suffer even when we haven't done anything wrong. Sometimes you... You might uh, wonder, like, where is God? Where are all these promises that I see in the Bible? But I haven't done anything wrong. I'm being persecuted by evil people, wicked things. So why is this happening to me? Is God in control or is he not? Here in verse 23, Jesus seems to be telling John that providence 
is God's business. And blessed are those who are not offended by that God. This is an important point because I think sometimes you may meet people who have abandoned their faith entirely. And when you talk with them about it, they, they often throw all kinds of arguments your way. Trying to explain to you why they think the Bible is a myth and how it's changed over the years. And, you know, you may be patiently trying to walk them through the uh, answering the objections. And they just keep moving from one objection to the next. And in some cases, the problem actually boils down to the fact that the person you're talking to has actually been greatly disappointed by God in some way or another. And now they just, as a result of that disappointment with providence, they just prefer to wish him out of existence. This was perhaps the frame of mind that Jesus was attempting to rescue John from. As with all of his followers, including you and me, Jesus sometimes calls us to periods of suffering and persecution. So the question is whether you believe in Jesus or the God of your own making who always wants you to be happy and comfortable. If comfort is your, your highest good, then Jesus will forever remain to you offensive. But if you follow the ancient promises recorded throughout the scriptures concerning the seed of Abraham, in whom all the world would be blessed, and the son of David whose kingdom would never end, if you study the promise about the suffering servant whom Isaiah describes who would be despised and rejected and led like a, a lamb to the slaughter, for the sins of his people, when you discover that the most reliable, trustworthy eyewitnesses that the world has ever seen promote this testimony about this one who fulfilled all these prophetic expectations, then we have a solid anchor for our faith. It is not a leap in the dark, but we can with confidence declare it to be certain and sure. In fact, that's the language Luke chose to include in the beginning of the prologue of his own gospel. Think about what he says there in the beginning of his gospel. He sends Theophilus this orderly account of all the eyewitness material, kind of like what Jesus did to John. He sends him eyewitnesses who report what they've seen. Luke does something similar to Theophilus. He says, I've interviewed the eyewitnesses and I'm declaring the most orderly account of what they have seen and testified to. And he says, in order to assure you of the certainty of these things. Therefore, let us not worship and venerate comfort as our God. Let us turn to Jesus as the sovereign Lord of history and let us serve him faithfully wherever he leads us, even if it's through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you have doubts? Do you sometimes question your faith? If so, don't let them fester. Get them out in the open. Share them with one another. Discuss them with family members, with pastors and elders. There's nothing at all impious about asking questions. In fact, people who are confident in their faith love to deal with tough questions. Since as in the case of John the Baptist, it's just simply another opportunity to focus on the firm foundation of our faith. Alternatively, whenever we are called to assist those who are wrestling with their doubts, we need to recall Peter's 
very helpful and clear instruction when he said that we should always be ready to give an answer to the hope, for the hope that is within us. But remember, he also adds, but do this with gentleness and respect. Let's pray. Merciful Father, give us the grace this day to believe what you have declared to us here from your word, and that we may persevere in that faith until we draw our last breath. For those dealing and struggling with doubts, grant that they may find answers to the end that their faith may be strengthened. Transform us, we pray, by your spirit more and more so that we may love and serve you as we ought and that we may love and serve one another even as you have loved and served us. In Christ's holy name we pray. Amen. Our hymn of affirmation this morning affirms our understanding that we are saved through the mercy of Christ and God, not because of anything they have done or can ever do. Please let's stand and sing together, praising our God. What my toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Not what I feel or do can give me peace with God. Not all my prayers and sighs and tears can bear my awful load. Thy work alone, O Christ, and ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy love to me, O God, not mine, O Lord, to thee, can rid me of this dark unrest and set my spirit free. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. No other work save thine, no other blood will do. is divine can bear me safely through I bless the Christ of God I rest on love divine and with unfaltering lip and heart I call this Savior mine his cross dispels each doubt I bury in his tomb each thought of unbelief and fear, each lingering shade of gloom. I praise the God of grace, 
I trust his truth and might. He calls me his, I call him mine. My God, my joy, my light. Tis he who saveth me and freely pardon gives. I love because he loveth me. I live because he lives. And now for the blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now we'll sing the Gloria Patri. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost as it was in beginning is now and ever shall be world without end Amen Amen Sunday school this morning uh, we're dismissed from worship but uh, we'll reconvene here the adults in uh, 10 or 15 minutes